Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History. Uh, I'm your host, Yorgos Yanakopoulos. Today, my guest is Eric Weitz, Distinguished Professor of History at the City College of New York. Eric is the author of a much-anticipated new book with Princeton University Press titled A World Divided, A Global History of Nation States and Human Rights Since the 18th Century. Although you're no stranger to the listeners of this podcast, Eric, I thought of kicking this off by asking you to introduce yourself and your research uh, for the benefit of our audience. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm very happy to be here and to have this conversation. Uh, I am, by by training, by background, a historian of modern Germany and modern Europe. But uh, as people may know, in the last 15 years, I've also written about global and international history, uh, in particular, the history of genocides and the history of human rights. So that's the, um, the background to the present book, A World Divided. So, I mean, to, to, to get onto this, I just want to ask you, how did the idea for the book emerge? Was it a culmination of years in thinking about certain themes? Uh, uh, yeah. Years of thinking, but also in conversation, especially with my editor, Brigitte van Rijnberg. Uh, in 2003, I published with Princeton University Press, uh, A Century of Genocide. And uh, now, Utopias of Race and Nation. And from that began teaching a comparative history of genocides. I had always taught the history of Nazi Germany, of course, but moved on to teach comparative genocides. Brigitte and I began talking about a a book series that we have at Princeton University Press. And at first was thinking, we were thinking about a book series on genocides and other human rights violations, but all that, the teaching and the book series, had come to seem too narrow to me. Uh, In the teaching, it felt like (laughs) the course, both for the students and for me, felt like one damn atrocity after another and didn't have the intellectual depth that I wanted and didn't quite capture what uh, I hope I've captured in the book, the dual quality of human rights advances and violations of human rights. So in conversation with Brigitte, the result of my own thinking around 2007, I was giving many uh, lectures, especially in Germany, uh, and gradually began to come to this understanding of the dual quality of human rights and human rights violations, the entwined character of them in the era of nation states, as is the subtitle of the book. And that uh, especially interested, I think, Princeton University Press. So... uh, that's that. That's basically the background 
to the current book. And then I have to say, uh, it took quite a while to get the balance right in every chapter uh, between human rights and their violations. Well, great. Thank you. Following straight from that, um, uh, I'll start with the title because indeed there's a lot to unpack in the title and the title of a book like this, so uh, diverse. Um, it is essentially, fundamentally, a global history of human rights. So I was wondering uh, if you, if we can unpack a bit that the, the word global. You know, yeah. what what, what yeah. is it that makes the book? Is it or is it it's uh, the spatial dimension only, or there's other? What is it that makes this book a truly well, global? Uh, I, I I think. Uh, sorry to correct you, but I think you. Uh, identified the book from an earlier title as the subtitle at least the subtitle is the global struggle for human rights Indeed. in the age Indeed. of nation states and i wanted to write a book uh that followed these two tracks the global history and the history of human rights as you know there's been quite a bit of historical writing finally about human Right, Sam Moyne's book, The Last Utopia, and Lynn Hunt's book, uh, Inventing Human Rights, kind of set the stage. You know, both excellent books. I have agreements and disagreements with both. That doesn't matter. But, but they kind of set the path for me and for many others to write about human rights. But I most definitely wanted to write about them on a global scale. And what I argue in the book is that while there obviously are different outcomes in the many different histories I, I engage with, uh, in every case, new nation states, or in the case of the United States, the refounding of, uh, of the United States through the Civil War and Reconstruction, in every case, states and movements have had to grapple with three issues. Namely, who really is considered a citizen of the nation state and therefore worthy of rights? That's the first question. Mm -hmm. uh, second, um, what do we mean by human rights? Because human rights, the meaning of human rights varies widely from a kind of straight liberal political rights conception that dominated in the 19th century, though even then there were liberals as well as socialists who argued that strictly political rights are meaningless without what we now call social and economic, economic rights. And then the third issue, how do we actually get rights? Uh, people often think that it is the result of heroic individuals the mothers and grandmothers demonstrating at the Plaza del Mayo in, in, in Buenos Aires, for example. And that is true, but it is true only in part. So the book in each chapter tracks this, what I call this very, this fleeting confluence of movement, activism, state interests, and the international community, the workings of the international community. And that's how we get human rights advances. The book is an affirmative history of human rights, but those advances mm -hmm. are almost always coupled with the exclusion of others who are not accepted as rights-bearing citizens. 
Great. Before we get into the journey and the journey arc that your that your uh, book um, uh, departs on, I'd like to uh, ask uh, again to um, restate the main cl- claim of the book as I take it, which is to say that the history of the nation state is the history of human rights. That is um, correct. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, to me, and you mentioned the historiography and the flourishing historiography on human rights uh, that overlooks this dimension. What I want to ask you then is, uh, why do you think that nationalism and imperialism has been have been left out of the history of human rights as it develops as a field? Uh, uh, for some reason, people have, have written kind of segmented histories. We have histories of human rights, of course. We have, you know, a huge, huge, huge literature on nations and nationalism and nation states. And to me, it seemed clear that human rights history and the history of nation states are entwined. That, um, and, and as you stated, and, and, and I think quoted from the book, to put it provocatively, uh, the, the history of nation states is the history of human rights because virtually every nation state, all 193 of them today, uh, have constitutions and laws that guarantee human rights, whether or not they enforce them or whether or not they violate them. That, that, that's, of course, an issue. So human rights and the nation state arose entwined together. They, we see it first in the revolutions of the late 18th uh, and early 19th centuries in, in North America, in the French Revolution, of course, in the Latin American countries. But those histories are entwined. Empires yeah, did not have constitutions until late in the 19th century. Empires did not proclaim human rights until sort of partially, somewhat, um, a few of them in the late 19th century. But the nation state almost always proclaims rights for its citizens. And that brings us back to the question then, who precisely has, as Hannah Arendt said, the right to have rights? Who can be a rights-bearing citizen? And this is also the great paradox, as you mention again and again in the book, nation states grant rights for some at the same time that they exclude for others. Right. This is the paradox that we live with. Uh, the nation state, if we are so fortunate to live in democracies, remains the best protector of human rights. But the nation, but the state is also the supreme violator, the exclusion enforcing agent that deprives many people of their rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a, a metaphor that struck me when reading the book, and I think you mentioned it a couple of times in the in various parts of the books, is um, you you, uh, you liken human rights to a multi-storied or multi-layered glass house. Yes. I wonder if you could like expand a bit more on this metaphor. To me, it seems very, very interesting. Because human rights are mobile. Uh, the meanings have have varied and have developed over the course of their history since the late nineteenth century, and those who are included, excuse me, in 
the charmed circle of rights-bearing citizens have ha, have varied as well. Human rights are, are are very dynamic. So, for example, in the 19th century, human rights were largely restricted to propertyed white men in Europe and in 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 the Americas. Uh, but even in the 19th century, emancipated slaves women, others, began demanding those same human rights. So that's, you know, when human rights expands to include new groups, that's part of the fragile glass house, the different, and then there are different angles. Soviet Union uh, would not come to mind to most people in any kind of history of human rights. But there is a socialist tradition of human rights that becomes part of the rhetoric, certainly not the reality, but a part of the rhetoric of human uh, of the Soviet system. And after 1945, the Soviet Union constructs an alliance with the countries of the global south that uh, significantly significantly expands the meaning of human rights. Uh, so the, to include social and economic rights, decolonization, and self-determination. So uh, we get an expanded understanding of what ca- human rights means through the actions of the Soviet Union and its Global South allies in opposition to liberal states like the United States and the UK, which want to hear nothing about social and economic rights uh, nor self-determination, especially while the UK still has colonies. And that counts for uh, any number of other states. So on both counts, the who is actually included in the charmed circle of human rights and what human rights mean, that's what I mean by this fragile glass house with many angles. Right. Great. Thank you. I mean, following from the last thing you said, uh, getting in the book, um, it seems the book takes the reader to a journey across continents, right? From from Greece to Northern Latin America, the European provinces of the Ottoman Empire, all the way to Central Africa in the end. Uh, and, and you refer to out-of-the-way geographies. I think that's a director. That's a direct quote from mm-hmm, the book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and you want to tell the story from these angles rather than focusing on the great powers. So what I'd like to ask you on this is, uh, you know, how, how much of a thought process went through the journey you were taking? How did you think of, of laying these chapters together? And second is, why did you pose Greece as the, Starting point of the journey. Um, the first criterion for me was choosing cases that reflected the variety of political economies in the modern era. So that meant um, places that became nation states out of empires like like Greece. It also meant co- communist states. It meant state slave societies. Uh, like, like Brazil, the whole compilation of different political economies in the modern era 
from uh, colonialism to communism, slavery to, to, to liberalism or slave societies in liberal states. I wanted to capture the variety of societies and, and, and nation states in the modern era and, and one you know, federation of nationalities, the Soviet Union. So that was the main criterion. Then secondly, sometimes uh, I wrote about places I knew something about, uh, like like Namibia, and sometimes I just plunged into places I did not know about and learned about. Um, so that's the that, those were the criteria. I started with Wait. Greece because Greece mm-hmm. was the first post-Napoleonic nation-state, beating out Belgium by nine months. Uh, and I thought that that history captured very well the dynamic between empire and nation-state, because although the book is most definitely about nation-states, most nation-states were carved out of, of empire, so there are empires in this, in this history as well. And uh, as I was doing research, uh, it became clear to me that with this first nation state, you immediately get at the issue of who constitutes a rights-bearing citizen, as limited as rights were in Greece in the 19th and for much of the 20th century. The question, who is a Greek, comes up constantly. It comes up in the Greek war against the Ottomans in the 1820s, so that um, the first putative constitution, and uh, there were many constitutions that followed, but until 1974, where it's moderated a little bit, but not a whole lot, all the constitutions say is a Greek is a member of the Greek Orthodox Church. Okay, so what happens to Jews? Muslims, Bulgarians, Lachs, and other people living in Greece. During the Greek war in the 1820s, um, as you probably know, <laughs> celebrated, <laughs> celebrated in Greece to this day as the great moment of national liberation. Well, you know, these heroic liberators are also slaughtering Muslims and Jews as they move through the country. And we have uh, Delacroix's great paintings, uh, the Massacre of Chios, and uh, uh, Greece expiring on, 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 on the ruins of, and Greece expiring on the ruins of Missolonghi, the two great paintings. Uh, we don't have anything, to my knowledge, that depicts in such vivid form the way those Greeks were also involved in what we would now call atrocities, human rights violations. So Greece immediately captures the dynamic of all the issues that I deal with in the book. Mm -hmm. Being Greek myself, I'm tempted to make this about Greece, but I shall move on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, I, 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 I... it's also a journey in time. It's not only a journey in different spatial dynamics, but also a journey between the 19th and the, from the 18th all the way through to the 20th century. Uh, and one of your key points is that as we move from the 19th to the 20th century, 
the opposition to human rights shift forms in a way from slavery to genocide. And I wonder if you could expand a bit on the, on, on this claim with also uh, chimes with the chronological arc of, of, of the book. Well, there, 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 are, there are a number of um, factors in this chronological development. On the atrocity side, yes, we move from uh, what we would now call ethnic cleansings of, of Native Americans, not quite genocide, but ethnic cleansings. And I deal with Indians in the North Country of the United States and Minnesota um, to the full-blown genocides of the 20th century, the first being of the Herero and Nama and argue that that reflects the entrenchment of race thinking as the dominant form of understanding difference in the Western world from, let's say, the, the well, partly from the Enlightenment, but especially with the emergence of so-called scientific racism from 1850 to 1945. Can we talk about rights in this situation? Yes. Not, not clearly human rights, but in the case of Namibia, there's no question that white people claimed rights and were granted ro- ro- rights, that they pressured the colonial authorities of their own country, home country of Germany, to uh, grant them rights in the same way they had rights at home. And we see that kind of development. The other... Uh, The other chronological development is, again, the expansion of the understanding of human rights. And that comes from various sources, but certainly by the time we get to the 1960s or going back into the debates within the various United Nations committees that are drafting what will be the two covenants of on human rights passed by the United Nations in 1966. It's totally clear to, again, the countries of uh, the Soviet bloc and the global South that rights have to signify social and economic rights as well as self-determination. Now, we can argue about all of this, whether these really are a part of or should be a part of the understanding of human rights. They are a part of the international legal system now. Uh, I personally am not a great fan of self-determination, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Uh, Arya Nair, one of the co-founders of Human Rights Watch, uh, offers a spirited defense of human rights as only political in nature. But for the most part, the common understanding, both among activists and scholars these days, is that human rights do include social and economic rights. So that's very different from a strictly political understanding of human rights. So just, you know, just for a quick example... When Brazilian slaves were finally emancipated in 1888, they were not even offered the promise of 40, something akin to 40 acres and a mule, as were American emancipated slaves. So there were no social and economic provisions to support 
emancipated slaves and economically their conditions were perhaps not very different from those under slavery. Putatively citizens, but with very, very little capacity to enter into the political system. And the legacy of all that is the high level of social inequality that exists in Brazil today. Mm -hmm. Lots to unpack there, and this is exactly what makes this book so rich. But um, I I shall move on certain uh, themes that I identified through the the book, and some of them might be topical, uh, but surely uh, we could be talking on for hours. Um, Moving on from Brazil, as you do in the book, then you take us to uh, um, the uh, uh, Ottoman Empire, wider world, as it were. And uh, Eastern Europe, that's to say, and and uh, you write about the history of minority rights, and this is a topic mm-hmm. you've also written elsewhere about, um, and and uh, especially by discussing the history of Jews and Armenians in the end of the nineteenth century. Uh, there you argue, and I'd like to discuss this a bit with you, that once conceptualized as such, minorities were seen as disruptive to the unity of the nation state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, my question would be here, uh, if one thinks of imperial states in the the time, such as Austria-Hungary and other states, can one potentially argue that there were examples whereby forms of multiculturalism uh, 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 and and traditions of legal pluralism made uh, uh, accommodated minority rights? Or is it just a story of transition to, to, to nation states? Uh, um, certainly, certainly one can. Uh, I think my, my point is that recognition as a minority is always double-edged. That is, uh, activists, certainly today, human rights activists, uh, activists representing all sorts of minority groups, argue that recognition is the path to full participation in society and the uh, abolition of discrimination and prejudice and, 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 and violent attacks, as we've seen in the United States for sure recently. Mm-hmm. But that recognition, although it can lead to more democratic and humane systems, as the Austro-Marxists argued for the, for the Habsburg Empire, for example, that same recognition can be turned around to make minority the targets of exclusion and violence. So, so that, that's another one of the paradoxes uh, mm-hmm. of the dilemmas. Uh, certainly, in in the chapter on the creation of minorities, you know, I start in 1878 at the Berlin Congress, uh, when Armenian and Jewish and NGOs, as we would now call them, well, it's the Armenian uh, Catholicos who comes to uh, to Berlin in 1878, and various Jewish organizations are there. They invent ethnic lobbying. And they leave Berlin, the Armenians with a partial victory, the Jews thinking they've won a great, great victory because the great powers have imposed on the Balkan state, new Balkan states and on the Ottoman Empire 
provisions for the equality of citizenship uh, and democratic rights and so on. So Jews in particular were ecstatic with the decisions of the Berlin Congress in 1878. But the condition of Jews continued to deteriorate. The conditions of Armenians uh, continued to deteriorate. This recognition and this hope for great power protection also could be turned and then was turned in the 20th century against both groups, uh, feeding the charge that they were, quote-unquote, disloyal to the systems under which they lived, fed into the Holocaust and the Armenian genocide. So it's this double-edged character of minority recognition that I want to emphasize in the book. Mm-hmm. Even though, even though, as you suggested, there are examples where um, minority recognition can serve to improve conditions. But I think one always has to be careful. If it's not linked right. to uh, a clear conception of human rights, a more general conception of our common humanity, that recognition can be turned against minority peoples. In many ways, the paradox you, you describe, and it runs through the book, seems uh, not easily resolvable. And, and I want to take you here from, from uh, you know, to, to, one, to, to uh, one of the later chapters in the book uh, about the Israel-Palestine um, um, dimension of this, of, of, of this problem. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and here, uh, when reading your chapter, on that, one one has again to raise the doubt: Can division ever end, or are we trapped in a in a, in, in in a condition of 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 as it were permanent division? So far, we're trapped. Uh, so so far, we're, we're trapped. Zionist leaders already in the 1930s were referencing the Lausanne Treaty of 1923 that provided for the so-called population exchange. The effort to create Greece as a homogeneous society, which led to the expulsion of close to 600,000 Muslims from Greece, and the effort to make Turkey, the new Republic of Turkey, a homogeneous society with the expulsion of over 1 million Greeks. In the language of the treaty, they were identified by, in, in, by religious categories, Greek Orthodox or, or, or Muslim. But everybody, all the great powers who were there at the Lausanne negotiations were thinking about uh, these, thinking about nation states. And the great powers and the leading representatives of Greece and uh, the new Republic of Turkey, Eleutherius Venizelos and Ismet Yanunu, they are the, and Lord Curzon, the chief British negotiator. They all thought that this was the way you not only handle ethnic violence, but the way you create stability via nation states. So Zionists, they don't, uh, they they keep it to themselves mostly in the 1930s, are already thinking about so-called transfer. I don't like the term because it masks the violence and misery that always accompany these 
large population expulsions, ethnic cleansings, if you will. Um, And this is the great paradox, and it is the great tragedy. After the Holocaust, it's hard to envisage any other solution for the decimated communities of European Jews than migration to Palestine and the foundation of a Jewish state. But that foundation was intrinsically accompanied by the expulsion of around 700,000 Palestinians. So that is the great paradox of the founding of Israel. Again, it's hard to see anything else but that after the Holocaust, but it did for sure come at the cost of Palestinian lives. And what what is it, um, last summer, I think, when the Israeli Knesset specifically defined Israel as a Jewish state? Well, uh, that, that decision caused some justifiable outrage, given the fact that there are still uh, Israeli citizens of Palestinian or- origin. But in a sense, Israel has always been that. And that's the dilemma of the nation state in the modern era. And just as the foundation of Greece um, brought forth, forth many of the dilemmas that I deal with in the book, so does the foundation of Israel in 1948. Pretty much a century later, yeah. uh, indeed. Uh, I'd be tempted to discuss more about your your account of the Russian Empire, of the Soviet state, rather that, as you hinted earlier, uh, uh, teaches a different tradition, but also a different story, uh, points to a different story about um, um, about the use of human rights. And here, just a minor question before we move on. I was I was really intrigued in your point about how uh, dissidents in Russia uh, in the post-war period, the way they employed the language of human rights and claims to human rights. I wonder if you can expand a bit on that. For them, and here I'm really drawing on the work of Ben Nathans and and, and a couple of other people uh, who've done path-breaking work in this regard. When when, uh, human rights and dissident movement first emerges in 1965, uh, the proponents are not espousing a liberal notion of human rights. That is a a strictly political notion. They are drawing on the Soviet constitution, the Stalin constitution of all things, which at least on paper in 19, uh, passed in 1936, on paper, probably the most democratic constitution in the world at the time. These human rights activists are firmly rooted in the socialist tradition, which means the inclusion, again, of social and economic rights and not just strictly political rights, though they certainly supported political rights as well, and the support of decolonization and self-determination. And that tradition goes back to Marx and Engels. Uh, People may know about Marx's withering critique of bourgeois human rights as he would have termed it but i think it's a mistake to think that marx and engels simply dismiss human rights they certainly thought 
a liberal conception was insufficient, uh, Marx and Engels used the term self-determination, not in the grand theoretical works, but in their journalistic and political writings in the 1850s and 60s and for Engels into the 1880s. So there's a deep socialist tradition that gets incorporated into the Soviet system. Stalin was, of course, the the author of the most important uh, communist text on the nations and uh, nations and nationalities, which argued that that the nation state is a path on the way toward socialism. Is only because of the immobility of the Soviet system under Brezhnev and his short-lived successors, that the Soviet human rights activists in the late, late in the 1970s and the 1980s, only because of the immobility of the system and the deep, deep repression that they all suffered, that they began to move toward what we can characterize as a more liberal understanding of human rights, but certainly not in their origins and certainly not in the first 15, 20 years of their existence. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, a couple of years later, the Soviet state disintegrated. States disintegrate in the international systems, new states are formed. However, in this process, and in these processes that you describe in the book, people are rendered stateless. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. And, 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 and you mentioned in the book as well that, you know, the big challenge of the refugee questions that we are not currently living through a, a great refugee crisis in the Aegean shores and elsewhere, uh, shores and elsewhere. And we have lived through in the past in European history and, uh, and not only. So I'm wondering the question, uh, I was, I wanted to ask you about the question of statelessness and how that links uh, with the story that you're telling in the book. Right. Intellectually, this is, of course, the great in, one of Hannah Arendt's great insights. And, and I have to say, this is one of the insights that long ago got me on this path. Uh, her writing that, you know, the irony of the universalist claims of the French Revolution is that in, in reality, we only have rights as citizens of nation states and that the worst condition short of annihilation is statelessness even though since 1945 we have the refugee convention of 1951 we have other international conventions that do say and even the u.s is a signatory to this that the stateless have human rights as well even Though we have those kinds of proclamations and understandings, the nation state remains the first place for the the demands, hopefully the enforcement of human rights. Even uh, in in the EU, the European Con- uh, and the European Convention on Human Rights, which remains the strongest enforcer of human rights at the regional level. Uh, you still first have to be an EU member, uh, a citizen of an EU member state before you really have access to to human rights and before you really can gain the protections that this regional enforcement uh, offers. Again, although although in 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 the EU there are 
better protections for the stateless, despite the huge refugee crisis today, than than in other places. I think the refugee crisis today points up very strongly the paradoxes uh, and the difficulties I describe throughout the book. That is, if you are stateless, where, who, how can you really have rights? And that is a dilemma that we have not solved at the political level, not, <laughs> not by a long shot, not in the U.S., not in Europe, not in anywhere else. And I argue in the conclusion that anything that has moved and will continue to move human rights enforcement to the international level is progress over the quandary that nation-state citizenship and human rights offers us, has offered us throughout the last 250 years. But So the refugee crisis, migrants, immigrants of, uh, of all sorts, underscore this paradox perhaps better than anything else. Mm-hmm. In the conclusion, uh, you strike a positive tone. In a way, one can read your prose as uh, in a positive light, a new era of accountability, a new wave of professional NGOs, etc. Uh, uh, you, you, you seem to suggest that the world today is a safer place for human rights. Um, and I want to ask you if there is any merit in the claims of those that you refer to as the skeptics, um, of human rights politics, people that are raising all these questions about, uh, you know, uh, uh, the imbalances, the inequalities inherent in the international system. Uh, yeah. Skeptics abound, and there's good reason for skepticism, for their skepticism, because you, know, you open the newspaper any day and you read about atrocities or other human rights violations on any and every continent around the world. So there, there's certainly uh, justification for that kind of skepticism and sometimes further these withering critiques, as I say. And on the other side, we have some human rights activists who think that when we get human rights, we will all live in a world of peace and prosperity. So there's a utopian vision there. I want to drive a middle ground between both of those positions. Uh, I I do believe that human human rights are the best thing we have going for us. And to abandon human rights for whatever reason, because because of their insufficiencies to date, uh, because they don't deal with certain issues like social inequality, uh, because some people claim, and I don't accept this, that they're necessarily Western imperialist in in nature. I don't. Uh, I still think that human rights are the best things we have going for us. We best prospects for the future to widen the circle of people who do enjoy human rights. But uh, I'm also not starry eyed about this. Uh, it, it's, human rights are never going to be implemented. Uh, in the full force of that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights proclaims. It's, all, it's always going to entail political struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, indeed. Uh, I, I'd like to finish this podcast with a, with a final question more prone to today's 
political uh, um, field, if you will. Uh, today, human rights discourse and rhetoric in America and elsewhere has become a platform for progressive politics in a certain way. What I have in mind here is references to healthcare access as a human right, to clean water as a human right. So uh, I was wondering what a historian who's written a, a, a very interesting and compelling narrative about uh, uh, the coming uh, the, the history of human rights would have to say to these kinds of uh, you know discur- new discourses that we have around human mm-hmm. rights today. Here I draw on the work of Martha Nussbaum and Amartya Sen, who write about you know, the capacities approach, and I think that's right. I think uh, people need to have a bare minimum of those things that make life possible of food and health care and clean water. So I think those underlie are necessarily a component of human rights as we understand them today. I think a strictly political understanding of human rights is too narrow. So uh, we need to ensure expand the political movements, the international community need to ensure that though those minima of, of, of social and economic rights are available to people around the world. That's an issue of politics. It's not really an issue of resources. There are resources enough in this world. We can also expand this to notions of environmental rights, uh, including, of course, climate change as well. I think we can say that um, people have the right to live (laughs) at the most basic level. And climate change endangers that very basic human existence. On that note, I'd like to thank you very much, Eric, for this conversation. And just to repeat again, the book is called The World Divided, The Global Struggle for Human Rights in the Age of Nation States. And thank you very much.